Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Ray Zhao. Ray, CEO of Affinity, believes every opportunity begins with a relationship and knows that business networks become unwieldy and harder to leverage as they grow larger. In response, he co-founded Affinity, whose eponymous CRM captures and organizes data exhaust from emails and calendars and combines it with other data sets to provide the relationship intelligence needed by decision makers in venture capital, investment banking, private equity, and consulting, industries where relationship building is foundational to deal making. A native of the Bay Area, Ray met Affinity's co-founder, Shubham Guayal, at Stanford, where they were studying computer science. Their goal is to bring relationship intelligence to the world at large. Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That was a very eloquent introduction. Excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, your background is very, very impressive. And we want to like dive deep into your story. And how did your childhood shape who you are today? So can you walk us through what your upbringing was like? I was born in Singapore and grew up in a family of scientists. My dad used to teach physics, you know, in in, in Singapore at the university level. And interestingly enough, when I was a kid, we actually came out to Silicon Valley because he wanted to come here to start a company. It was a hardware company, I think. He kind of learned the the hardship, you know, back then of how, how hard it is to take an idea from an academic idea to to reality to creating a, a full blown product. But that's kind of how we got started. And you know, I've been sort of a considering myself in some sense, like you know, a California native, California lifey since then. I think some things that are interesting is you know when I was growing up, the, the way that my parents kind of raised me was they were always incredibly supportive of whatever I did. You know, they're stance was always to be, you know, uh, unconditionally supportive, you know, whatever it was. And I think that ended up coming to play when we started building the company and we started Affinity and I was contemplating dropping out to, to build the business, but, you know, not having had an education or growing up in the, in, in the U S and the West, a lot of what they said was whatever you do will support you, but we don't have a lot of sort of immediate background to tell you like how to navigate, you know, the education system here or anything like that. And interestingly enough, after we started the, the company, the business, we ended up realizing, I ended up realizing that I kind of reconnected with my, you know, dad on a bit of a different level, you know, started the company at one point, it didn't quite work out, but we ended up having a common thread to, to talk about. So yeah, that's the way that. I'm so glad that, you know, you, your parents were very, very supportive of, you know, anything that you wanted to do because oftentimes 
were kind of pigeonholed into doing things that they would expect us to do. You know, like your father being a physics professor, normally our parents would want us to kind of follow in the same line of work or try to influence to become a doctor or a lawyer or some sort. But I'm really, really glad that they were being very, very supportive of you. I know that you had graduated from Stanford around 2014, and that was also the same year that you had started Affinity. So I want to know, you know, have you ever, have you always had this kind of like entrepreneurial mindset? And if so, like, where do you think that came from? And how did you kind of like determine, like, you know what, I want to do something right after I graduate from Stanford and kind of start my own business? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess one, one, you know, uh, really minor correction there is actually Stanford is incredibly supportive of folks who, you know, go build businesses in the, in the middle of the program. And I actually did two years at Stanford. I didn't fully graduate before we started working on the company. So it was a bit of like, you know, a take a leave of absence, you know, type situation. And it's kind of crazy to think that was, you know, about six and a half, seven years ago. Um, so it's, it's really been a ride since then. I think the, you know, the entrepreneurial bug or itch, I never was interested in starting a company for the sake of starting a company. You know, some, one of the things I've really reflected on or thought about is it's more the question of like, what's the impact that you can make on the world. Right. Like one thing in general is I think as like, you know, growing up our education system tends to be really sort of focused on pigeonholing you to figuring out like, how do you define yourself based on your craft? So examples of the craft is like, the first thing that you're asked when you get into college is, you know, what's the major that you want to study? If you chose computer science at Stanford, just because it's such a huge major, you'd then be asked, like, what's your ideal concentration? And then after that, it's, you know, what's your ideal job? What's your ideal job title? What's your ideal company you want to work at? And obviously, there's a wrong way of thinking about things when you kind of look at the world from the lens of craftsmanship, right? But at least personally, it never really kind of spoke to me. Maybe to share a bit of a background, you know, I was really interested in the life sciences and biology growing up. And actually was working on a wet lab for, you know, most of my, you know, my time in high school. And when I started picking up my first computer and programming, I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is actually a tool of the 21st century now. You know, I can, you know, don't have to wait for my turn on the PCR machine. I can just, if I have an idea and I have a passion, I can instantly go build something out of it. And so I remember when I was starting school, I was like trying to look for that nugget of, you know, like what's kind of the intersection of computers and biology that could be interesting. And basically my point is like, I spent a lot of time soul searching to find like the right craft, like what's the right major, the right concentration. And I remember there's a talk that happened on campus, I forget who it was who, who, who gave it, but at some point, like when the person came in basically said, you don't have to define yourself purely by your craft. You can define yourself by your cause essentially. And it's this other lens of looking at the world, which is in startups, instead of starting from, you know, what's the job or company or description or industry that you're you know, looking to, to be in, you start from the question of what are the problems in the world that really matter to you? You know, like what are the missions or the things that, you know, get you up in the morning every day and like make you really motivated to, to do what you do. And I ended up realizing that's kind of a mental framework that fit better organically with the way that I kind of saw the world and what drove me. And that's kind of how I stumbled into being a founder or starting a company, you know, frankly speaking, it wasn't, and I don't think in general, it's not a great idea to start a company for the sake of starting a company. Like the glamour of how hard it is to build a business, like very quickly evaporates as you get started, like the first six, 12, like, you know, months, two years, et cetera. But if you think about it, like a company is really this incredible vehicle or vessel for change. Like it's this very specific permutation of people, right? Like, you know, when you look at like, what are the recurring themes of backgrounds that, you know, compose a company? It's like, you've got, you know, engineering, design, product, you know, sales, customer success. That's a, that's a super, super specific like, permutation. 
you sometimes wonder like, you know, why aren't there more organizations that are like, you know, 5% philosophers, you know, like 10% musicians, et cetera. And I think the reason's because the, the, by definition, what a company is, is it's an organization that has to create a product or service that is fundamentally self-sustaining. Like if, if, if there's no market or demand for it, the thing itself will eventually die. Right. And that's why like over time you've seen sort of this idea, this construct of a, a business, like just continually being this incredible vehicle for creating change in the world. And uh, that's what I saw as well. You know, like in, in building affinity, it was, it's not just like, Hey, we can create a great product or service, but it's a self-sustaining like vehicle or vessel for making the world better, like implementing a vision and getting it to the hands of everyone. And so that's kind of working from. Yeah. I'm really happy you see it in that way. Right. And we always talk about this with other founders in the podcast too. Like your company is a reflection of who you are and it's your soul. Right. You have a product, but the company also has what it stands for, its values, morals. So I'm really happy you're able to dive deep inside and really give us like the explanation that you know what the company is capable of like changing the world and making it better because of the founders and what it stands for. Right. So I'm kind of curious too, because you started this company literally right out of college. How are you able to implement like a like a corporate structure as you guys are scaling? I found that kind of challenging in my case, at least when I was, when we were scaling and hiring employees, it's like, I'm kind of glad I had that corporate experience to fall on. You're like, I know managers, directors, whatnot, but for yourself, like, how did you draw upon these experiences to like, like ask for advice to, to scale your company at, at a relatively fast rate? Yeah, I think, so one thing in general is like corporate structure is like for the departments that we have within the business, you know, they're, they're not fundamentally novel or fundamentally new, you know, sort of that there are a couple, a number of like sort of major first pillar sort of departments and functions that drive the company. But I think the way that we kind of came accustomed to it, it really was sort of this like growth and learning mindset. You kind of touched on this earlier, Brian, but when we got our start, we had very frankly speaking, like little idea of what we were doing. I mean, it was the first time that, you know, my co-founder and I, Shubham and I had, had built anything. And so we were just like hungry and curious to learn, you know, um, one of, one of my, uh, old mentors from, from Stanford, who's actually my advisor, um, in the computer science department, he used to say, you know, uh, a little bit of slope makes up for a lot of Y intercept. And that's kind of generally the background of the types of people that you want to bring onto your early team. And I think we tried to really embody that to the best that we could, you know, uh, look at the world humbly and try to learn from the best people around us. And so we quickly identified how do you scale up, you know, a, a, pro- a great product and build organization? How do you kind of take that product to market? That was the kind of question, the kind of problem where, you know, it pro- we didn't need to reinvent the wheel to some degree, right? Like there are incredible SaaS and B2B businesses that have been built well before us that had figured out like the right, you know, team structure, the right departments, the right corporate structure uh, to make it all happen. So we just reached out to great mentors and advisors. We had an amazing network. It's actually very incongruent with our mission as a company, which is you know, a part of the thesis of, of affinity is that relationships are the most important asset that everyone kind of builds up over their lifetime and that they own. And we used our relationships to get connected to people who had done it before, had seen the journey and seen the movie, and they kind of helped pave the way for us building the company that we are today. I love it. I really love your perspective and everything. It's it's, it's really, really deep. Like, I, th- I think that when people listen to this podcast, they appreciate that you did take a lot of time to reflect upon everything. So I just want to take it back a step and talk about the early days of starting your company, right? I know you mentioned you're kind of just find, finding people who have done it before to sort of help mentor you, but how did you select the right advisors and whatnot? Because in very early stages, and unfortunately in Silicon Valley, you're going to 
talk to a lot of predatory people that I want X amount of equity upfront and whatnot. How are you able to navigate that field while still and essentially jumping up a hill, like jumping off a cliff and building your house at the same time? Like how are you able to learn as fast as you can to apply it to like your immediate decision and and hope that it's the right decision? Yeah. You know, I think we weren't, we were lucky to not have, you know, have honestly like only had, you know, great experiences with, you know, the mentors, the coaches, the advisors that we ended up working with. And uh, I think that was in part because like the proxy for how we brought on, you know, kind of these people that ended up making a really big difference, really shaped both the trajectory of the company and myself, like my own growth as a founder was they were the best people that the folks that we had already known, you know, knew. And so when we got introduced or connected, you know, it was, uh, there's a real, a really a, a pretty high probability that they were someone pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, who we would really jive with. But I don't think there was any sort of magic to it, you know, thinking back. I think more than anything, what, you know, at least I, I brought to the table, what my co-founder and I brought to the table was just a curiosity and uh, being really open. You know, I think there are definitely like, that's to your point, like, and, and sometimes there's some big egos in, in the tech industry in Silicon Valley. We were really upfront with admitting, you know, like what we didn't know, which was a lot of things back then, but we were also really curious to learn and uh, and to kind of, identify our blind spots and think about things from first principles and absorb as much knowledge as we could. And I think the early folks that we worked with that, you know, they really took, took that to heart and, you know, they, they love that. And that's what allowed us to build sort of a flourishing relationship. So nothing in particular, you know, that specific that, you know, made it possible. And it's also possible we just got lucky to be honest, but yeah, great people have always been at the heart of, you know, our, at least my, my founder journey. Amazing. I mean, yes, luck does have a little bit to do with it, but I mean, you've built something incredible and, you know, you were able to build your team so fast in such a short amount of time. And recently your company announced an $80 million Series C funding. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, which brings, I believe, your total funding for the company to $120 million. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. And then I also saw that in 2015, you had your Series A. So that's like only a year. Can you talk about just like your experience in that one year while you were bootstrapping and like what your experiences were and like what kind of challenges did you go through during that one year that you were starting your company in 2014? Yeah, yeah. So it was really an interesting journey. You know, I think every company has a unique and, you know, kind of founding story, right? So, you know, for us, at least in the early days, like we were founded out of the computer science department at Stanford, basically. And we spent a lot of time in the beginning just building product and making all kinds of mistakes, you know, as we were looking for a product market fit. I mean, Brian, sounds like you've sort of been through this experience before personally as well. I'm not sure, you know, I think every company has a bit, have, has a bit of a different journey, but for us, it was a lot of sort of working hard on the product. You know, it, it is no trivial technology problem that kind of underlies the product that we've created so far. And uh, it was some of the hardest like problems in like distributed systems and data syncing and everything. And so we just spent a lot of our time iterating there. And in fact, I think funnily enough, like looking back, we probably spent actually too much time like iterating on early product. And there's a bit of hesitation in the early days to say like, let's just put it in front of the customer and see what their impression of it is. But yeah, I just remember back then when we got started, it felt like every hurdle that we had to cross seemed impossibly hard. There was one point in time when there was real technology risk. So we'd look at what we were doing and say, is this even possible? Like we don't know, you know, thankfully got past that hump. Our early sort of customer base and user base was 
And this was, you know, really beneficial in hindsight, but all the investors that we were talking to, like venture capital firms, venture capital investors, et cetera, they were really interested in using the platform and the product. It solved a very clear pain point for them. And uh, after we got past the technical hurdle, then the question became, how do we just get one sort of user who's actually among our own sort of investor base to be using the thing on, on a regular basis, just to actually log in, like forget using it constantly, just to log in. And that was seemingly impossibly hard as well. So it was like, oh man, we're screwed, you know? Like we can't even get our own investors who have every financial incentive to want to log into this thing to, to log in. But we worked really hard. We had already got past that. And then it seemed uh, impossible for us to get them to log in and use it every single day. You know, it's not every product out there in the world that, you know, drive or command daily usage. But we eventually got past that. And then, you know, I have to get past the hurdle of like, how do we figure out our go-to-market motion, get someone to pay for it? What would they even pay? Like, it was a lot of experimentation and iteration that got us to where we are. But yeah, I think we just like, you know, we're really persistent, resilient. You know, we went after each challenge and didn't try to overthink it. And that's what brought us to finding product market fit and scaling the business to where it is now. Is amazing. I mean, yes, those are very, very valid problems to solve. I mean, like us, Brian and myself running Asian Hustle Network, it's also like one of the key things that we wanted to make sure that everyone was, you know, logging into Asian Hustle Network and like checking our platform every single day. It is hard. It, it definitely is hard. And yeah, you, you've built something amazing. And, uh, Thank you. Yeah. I feel like you definitely need, like you definitely need to give yourself a lot more credit as well because you made it sound so easy. There you, <laughs> I know, <laughs> you know, you <laughs> But you would say, as, like, we, we had this problem, we got over it. Yeah. <laughs> like, but as a fellow wow. founder, it's like, man, this is, this is, this is hard. Like, you're yeah. facing your problems hella hard, right? You're just sitting there, you're like, man, like, is this the right move? Like, experimentation, what's our boundary? It's all like, thinking of your own imagination, what the solution is, you know? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, and, and I think it kind of, it kind of never, never stops. So I think this is one of the parallels between, I guess, like, science, having grown, grown up in a in a family of scientists and, you know, building businesses, building companies, building products, which is pretty much everything in building a company is an expression of a hypothesis, right? Like in the beginning, the hypothesis was, is, you know, like it should be technically possible to make something like affinity. And then there's like hypotheses from there. It's, you know, like, is there demand for this in the market? Can it drive like regular usage? But it's basically hypotheses stacked inside hypotheses. Like even right now, like, I mean, you know, as we think about entering new industries and markets, you know, building new products on top of our core data infrastructure. Those are all hypotheses as well. You know, there's no like assurance or guarantee that any specific thing is going to work. The difference between, I guess, like a scientific experiment or hypothesis is it's really clear after a certain point when you've done everything in your control and it's just up to the universe to decide like what the answer to the question is, if that makes sense. Right. So if you like set up your experiment properly, you know, all your experimental variables, your control variables, it's all done. And it's like, all right, I know I've done everything I can. Now, is this only thing going to work? Is it going to, you know, cure cancer or, you know, like defeat COVID or whatever? Like it's kind of out of your, your control at that point in, in the world of business and building these things, it's a little bit different. Like the challenge is, when you formulate a hypothesis, you can never actually tell, well, first of all, if something did work, then it's like, okay, cool. Like clearly that was validated. If it doesn't work, but the thing that drives you, you know, at least me crazy, is it did not work because there is something fundamental about the, the universe or the market. You know, like there's fundamentally no, no demand for this thing, or fundamentally there's some sort of a blocker. The world's not ready to use what we're using. Or is it just because like you didn't execute well? And that's like the, the really crazy thing that I think drives you insane. In general, I think like, probably the most pernicious aspect of 
human nature to anyone building a company is like this idea of wishful thinking. So like wishful thinking is you really want something to be true. And so it biases you to seeing everything in a light that, you know, kind of confirms your bias. And it makes it sometimes hard to see like what the actual reality is. Right. But yeah, when something's not working yet or hasn't worked yet, it, you know, you really kind of constantly ask like, is this wishful thinking or, you know, do I really think this is going to end up working? So yeah, it's, it, it never stops, you know, like uh, we're still like, constructing hypotheses and growing and scaling even from here on out. Amazing. I mean, we know that Affinity manages relationship journeys and I, I guess to kind of like get deeper into the product itself, because I don't think we've really talked about like how it actually works, but we know that it manages relationship journeys and unlocks like introductions to decision makers, which a lot of corporations need, right? Can you tell us actually how it works specifically and why something like this hasn't been kind of done before? Because there's obviously a lot of options for softwares for transactional relationships, but there isn't really anything for relationship journeys. So tell us like how it works and why it wasn't really done before. Yeah. Yeah. So we call Affinity is like the leading relationship intelligence platform um, in the world. And when I say relationship intelligence, you can kind of think of it as the next evolution of CRM, network management, contact management software, right? And the, the key difference between how a relationship intelligence sort of stack works is basically the idea is that there's all this sort of hidden data. There's these enormous volumes or sources of passive data exhausts about people's relationships that are essentially hidden inside, you know, the streams of data produced by email interactions, calendar meetings, you know, we're on a Zoom call right now, for example, all these different sort of tools that people are organically already using. And uh, we think of those things as just ways for us to communicate, right? Um, the thing that's not intuitive is that there are also data sources, like just by virtue of anyone in the world, you know, just being a normal person, sending out emails, et cetera. It's spewing out this ocean of data that paints the most powerful picture of people's relationships. And so the heart of what Affinity does um, essentially is we aggregate and sync and analyze all that information. We apply machine learning to it to better understand and compute all these different insights. So it's automating away sort of the data entry of managing a really large network by hand. It's, you know, computing like who in an organization has the best chance of opening a door for you or making an introduction or closing a deal, right? It's automating sort of understanding the full history of a relationship from start to finish. So that's kind of the flagship product that we have put out there. And that's sort of the concept of uh, relationship intelligence overall. As for why it hadn't been done, you know, it's one of those things where like the, the standardization of technical protocols necessary to make something like Affinity possible, people only started really picking up on the fact that you could do really interesting and exciting things with all this data exhaust, I would say like roughly a decade ago. Yeah. And that's made possible because like there are these like global ubiquitous standards, right? So email is a standard, like you can use, someone can use Gmail somewhere, someone else can use, you know, Outlook or Microsoft email, like uh, Yahoo mail, et cetera. There's a global standard for how email is exchanged. And so you can tap into that data automatically, you know, in a programmatic way. And so it, I think it's from a combination of just, yeah, the technology side of things is what enabled something like Affinity to basically exist. And that's what we realized about seven years ago, you know, when we started the business, which was, we looked at the way that the biggest industries in the world were run. And uh, basically realized that even though a lot of, as you mentioned, Maggie, there's a lot of great software in the world that's been built for what we call transactional relationships or transactional sales. So that's typically, you know, the worlds of, you know, retail or hospitality, or uh, honestly, a lot of technology sales. There wasn't a lot of really great software that was built for more of what we call relationship driven industries or sort of the relationship driven economy. Like when you look across the sectors and 
financial and professional services, like private capital, investing, consulting, real estate, nonprofits, et cetera. You know, these are the organizations where they have a bit of a different view of their relationships. They're, you know, less short-term, they're a lot more long-term, they're a lot more sort of strategic. You can never tell when you meet someone when that relationship is going to come back to unlock or enable the biggest deal of your life, right? And it's really that universe that we realized was being super underserved by legacy software. And that was essentially the enormous set of markets that we could apply relationship intelligence to, to really transforming the way they work. But yeah, it's been a crazy you know, ride. I mean, since our founding in 2014, I think our platform has processed more than 18 trillion emails and calendar events to build this relationship graph, like computing the strengths of people's connections across a wide range of metrics and powering more than half a million new introductions on the platform and tracking more than 450,000 deals per month. That's amazing. I, yeah, the way that you explained it, it, it just makes so much sense. And I you love that you passion behind there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you like went out and actually saw how bigger corporations were operating and, you know, the fact that they probably didn't even know that they had this problem until, you know, you presented the solution. And I think that's, that's the way we're trending towards too, like building relationship journeys, right? Because when we do think about transactions, yes, it could be like a one-time transaction, but whenever you do have a transaction or relationship, you do want to, uh, we would, I would hope that, you know, all corporations or organizations would want to continue that relationship after that, tra- that transaction is done. That's how you maintain these relationships and, you know, build more business with that, with that one corporation or organization, right? So it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, yeah. It's, it's the, I think we really think that, you know, it's the most powerful asset that, you know, team, every individual owns. Like, you know, on one hand, it's, it's extremely true for the biggest, you know, some of the most impactful, the largest industries in the world. But on the other hand, when you think about it, it's true for anyone, right? Like how many assets are there that you kind of build up and accrue and take with you throughout your entire lifetime, you know, as you go from school to school, from job to job, like literally, I, I can't think of more than maybe a handful of them. I mean, you have like, you know, the, you know, the house that you buy or the bank account you, that you open, arguably those things, you, you could sell a house, you can close a bank account, right? But also arguably like they, they pale in comparison to the value of the importance, like the lifetime impact of the people that you meet, you know, the relationships you build. You know, people often say it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I think that's just incredibly true. And the other thing about, I guess, those industries kind of to touch on what you mentioned is I think this is maybe like one of the, the benefits of having taken a fresh look, you know, as a technologist uh, into some of these industries like venture capital and banking consulting from the outside, because, you know, I guess like when you're, when you've been in industry for a super, for a super long time, you're just, you're used to having to spend hundreds of hours every month, like entering data into your CRM or otherwise accepting that just CRM is a lost cause. You know, the data is always going to be stale. It's always going to be you working for the system and not the other way around. Right. It's kind of easy to just accept. That's just the reality. That's the nature of things. And when we went into sort of, you know, diving into seeing the way that, you know, the world of private capital or financial services operated, there were just so many moments in time when we looked at the way things were being done and just said, why is this happening? This is like, so, this is so bizarre. It's absolutely crazy. You know, you guys do realize that the data necessary to create, you know, a 10 X or hundred X more effective solution, a better way to track your relationships to just automate away all the, you know, manual input that you're spending, like, you know, doing, doing this sort of thing, all that data exists. Like you already have access to it. Like, you know, and yeah, it is pretty counterintuitive. And I think that's what we're trying to get the world to wake up to, you know, that everyone owns this incredibly powerful data asset and uh, they just need the tools to be able to unlock the value and potential of it. And so we're kind of on this, you know, decade long journey to democratize that, to make it possible for anyone in the world. 
I think Maggie will agree with me that you're probably one of the most intelligent founders we ever had in the podcast. <laughs> like, I absolutely love uh, it. It's I'm a computer science guy too. So I'm just like, damn, like this is really, really good information. You know, I'm really curious because you mentioned earlier that this business idea started in a Stanford classroom. Like what class was that? What, what fundamentals was that? And how does this idea ever come about? It's like, Hey man, I have this idea that I got during this class. Like want to implement that? Like how did how did every, what was the fundamental basis behind this? I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Yeah. It actually wasn't a, a classroom, but the department basically. And, and in fact, a lot of sort of the, the early sort of designers, product people, like engineers on the team had kind of, it was basically our friend circle. It was like the smartest people that we knew. We, we brought them on and they brought the smartest people that they knew on. And it was just kind of this undulating, you know, thing. And uh, again, it's all about the people that we knew. Right. But, you know, every company started for a different reason. And to be very frank with you, you know, Affinity was not the company that was founded because my co-founder and I were like born into the world. And like the first thing that, you know, baby Ray said was, oh my God, you know, relationship management for financial services, it's, it's super broken. Frankly speaking, for a lot of the industries and sectors that we ended up building this sort of tech for, we were learning a lot on the fly as well. So I think there, there was a bit of like intention and serendipity. You know, I think being at Stanford, it basically puts you at the very periphery of this incredible network of, of people, of, you know, investors, of like long-term thinkers. And there are a number of investors that we had met in the early days. They were this firm called ABC. It used to be called Formation Aid back then, but, you know, they had renamed as well as uh, Pair Ventures started by Pedro Nazad and Marvin Shenson. Through complete serendipity, we had gotten to, to know them. So for the folks at ABC, it was because their founding partners, uh, Joe Lancey, Andrew Oding had come to, Stanford campus to give a talk. And they were talking about sort of this AP, a, a formation eight or self-formation eight back then, you know, their sort of fundamental thesis, you know, this thesis called smart enterprise. And they're kind of sharing that worldview with, with, with the entire room. And I remember back then my co-founder and I actually were living together. Actually, actually one thing I should mention, we had lived together for seven years and it literally took a pandemic to separate us. So we were both working together, living together, like I mean, Shivam's like basically like like my brother or something, essentially. Like they say when you start a company with someone, it's like getting married to them, but we didn't take that to be meant to be to be meant literally. But there was one morning he woke up and he was like, Hey, you know, there's a really interesting talk going on. You know, should I actually go and uh, check it out? And I could easily imagine a world where he didn't end up going. And maybe if, you know, if that was the path that ended up panning out, like the company wouldn't have even existed, right? So it's kind of crazy how sometimes serendipity plays a role in that. With Pageman and, and Mar, for instance. I think we literally sent them like a cold email. So it was, it was like a day or two days after they had set up their website because they had set up shop in this like a uh, little office that was just on the perimeter of campus. And it was just like, honestly speaking, it was, it was not a very well-designed website. It was just like GeoCities, like, you know, looking website, Times New Roman everywhere, but they had their email address on it. And so we just cold emailed them and said, wow, the, you know, these folks look really awesome. They've got incredible backgrounds. Like PageMan has an amazing story. Mar has an incredible story. We just called emailed them and said, hey, you know, we're two students and we're really curious about the world and want to learn more from you. And would you be interested in just getting lunch with us? And so we did. And so it was those two threads, like getting to meet, you know, some of these early folks that all ended up being investors in Affinity exposed us to the world of relationship driven industries. Essentially, it was through connections and conversations with them. 
that, you know, made us realize, I mean, I think we had ended up having like hundreds of conversations with every flavor of every sort of financial professional services type organization, you know, sector out there in the world. And we basically kept hearing the same problems over and over again. It was like, it was, it was the same repeat things. Like people would come up to us and say, as if it was a first time hearing something, but it was always the same patterns. Like I manage a massive network. I have no time to enter data about my network. And I feel like I'm working for my tools as opposed to my tools working for me. And that's when we realized, you know, put two and two together and said, hey, there's all this data exhaust that is technically accessible that could help you solve your problems in an order magnitude better way. And that's kind of what gave rise to the company. That's so, so interesting. Like, I love hearing these stories and just like knowing what that foundation was. You sold me. I'm about to be a customer after this. (laughs) (laughs) That is true, though. Like, all founders have that same problem. You know, they manage all these relationships and being a founder or just being like a C-level exec, you have to manage relationships. But very rare do they think about like, oh, how do I you know, manage this in a better way? You know, they think it's whatever they have is probably the best thing that they have to work with. So I love that you kind of did your research and found out that, you know, everyone has the same problem and there should be something done about it. Yeah. The thing that's like kind of shocking often also in hindsight is like, there is so much like luck involved. And I, I really do believe that, you know, there's so many formative moments where if we hadn't just met this one person or I don't know, so many of the incredible people that were part of, you know, Affinity's early team, you know, both like employees, like mentors, coaches, advisors, uh, it's kind of daunting to think like, you know, if this particular connection didn't happen or if we didn't talk to this person, like what, what would happen? You know, maybe it wouldn't be where we are. Maybe it'd be a very different company. I don't know. So it, it fills me with a lot of humility to kind of reflect on that. Yeah, amazing. You were also, you and Shubham were also named Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2019. So congratulations on that as well. What was your reaction to that? And did you also share the news with um, like your father and your family? And what was the reaction? Uh, when we were flattered, obviously. We honestly, I, I don't know, didn't didn't make too much of it, you know. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it was, uh, it was super humbling and and, you know, really awesome to be a part a part of the list but i guess the, the reason that we do any of these things and it kind of goes back to you know what i was talking about earlier about like what impels you to build a company in the first place right it, it's about like you know the the mission and the impact and the people that you get to work with and the relationships that you build along the way that's kind of like the first principles like you know a driver essentially i know that and certainly was true for both me and for for Shivam. and and so you know, to be honest with you, we didn't make a ton out of it. You know, we said, okay, this is awesome. That's great. Like we're still so far away from actualizing the vision of affinity. Like let's get back to it, you know? And I think as for my parents, they've only ever been like unconditionally supportive of anything that, you know, I've, you know, worked on or done. And obviously they were happy, but I think part of that, you know, kind of unconditionalism was also like, they always said, you know, whether you succeed or fail or whatever happens, like, you know, as long as you're having a good time and doing what you're passionate about and what you love, like we'll support you. That's, that's what matters to them at the end of the day. Right. And uh, nothing else really. So they didn't have any sort of like particular expectations for, you know, how whatever thing that we were working on ended up panning out. And so I think we were happy, but it wasn't one of those things where it's like, you know, they're supportive, but you know, that's kind of the, it was, that was the extent of it. And yeah, I love that about them. You know, it, it really was an empowering way sort of to grow up and to work on the things that I was really passionate about and yeah, have the freedom to do that. So. I love that. Yeah. That's amazing to hear. How do you see Affinity scaling in like the next couple of years? Cause I know recently you 
had about 125 employees officially now. And then I read that you're trying to get over to 200 by next year. So what do you see as like the next couple of goals for Affinity and yourself as well? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's essentially proven without a doubt at this point, like there's, there's, a, I mean, relationship intelligence, there's definitely sort of a lot of market appetite for it, you know, and uh, at this point, the goal is to basically democratize to put it in as many hands as possible. And so we're basically scaling up the business as fast as we can. You know, we're doing a lot to bring affinity to as many industries as, as we can, um, as many markets. We're going global. The company today, um, I mean, the product today is already powering more than 70, 1,700 institutions in, in over 70 countries. And there's a lot more to be done in, you know, Europe, you know, the Middle East, et cetera, just like many different parts of the world. And the, the other thing that's interesting is when you talk about sort of this concept of building a relationship intelligence platform, you know, kind of the, the flagship product that we built on top of our data infrastructure was... Uh, Affinity CRM. So that's sort of, you know, the flagship product that we have right now. It's an end-to-end CRM. Like when someone you know decides to go in and use Affinity, it's literally sort of like their complete source of truth, their database for all of their relationships. But there's more that you can do with the technology. You know, I think there's a lot of very interesting things that can be built when you sort of built this infrastructure that can sync all this, you know, hidden information, this, this huge volume of data that everyone has access to about relationships, but that no one's really thinking about. And so we're also starting to do some experimentation, you know, building new things, like trying out new things to figure out like what, what are new products we can create on top of that. And that's also a really exciting thing. I can't share too much about like the details there, but it's going to be a lot of scale, like growing the team, leveling up the team and uh, yeah, bringing the, the vision to as many sectors of the world as we possibly can. Awesome. Well, we can't wait to hear and see all of those this new events and things coming up for you and Affinity. So we have one question for you, one last question for you, Ray, and that is if you could give one advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that one advice be? Actually, I want to narrow it down a bit more. If you give one advice okay, to a ahead. college student right now that's thinking about leaving college to start their, their company or want to start a company in college, what advice would that be? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That is a very good one. I think there are, there's a couple of things that come to mind, but maybe one that I would probably focus on is you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, essentially. Like so many times in a company's history, you're going to be thrown into a situation where you don't have a lot of prior experience for how to handle a, you know, a situation. And it's a matter of you know growing and scaling yourself incredibly quickly and bringing on incredible people who can help you solve a particular problem at hand. It's really hard like you know, to get something off the ground and, and scale it up. I mean, like I words can't describe how difficult it is. Funnily enough, when I look back, it was, you know, I think we were naive in many ways. And so we kind of naively just jumped in and ended up realizing, oh my God, this is incredibly difficult. But yeah, like we kind of developed essentially a framework. So whenever we were, you know, in a time of hardship, like understanding like, okay, like this is a situation that we've never sort of experienced or figured out how to, how to handle before. Like that's okay. Right. You know, it's not your first time being in the situation and really, you know, having the framework to quickly learn and adapt and figure out like, what's the best way to solve the problem. That kind of comfort with discomfort, I think is, uh, is, is probably the thing I would really, you know, alert, alert founders to, because when you are in a student in college, like you're going to have some, you know, strengths and weaknesses and everyone has their own zone of genius. You know, what's kind of the overlap between like the things that, you know, that you organically really love doing and that you're really good at. And it's easy to not want to step outside of that, you know, zone of comfort. 
right? You know, if I'm an engineer, for instance, as an example, it's like, oh, I just want to keep writing code. Or if I'm a, I don't know, if I study like, you know, business, et cetera, I just want to keep selling, you know, customers. And you kind of have to get out of your comfort zone, uh, stretch into areas and learn new things that you might not be super familiar with. So yeah, I, I keep coming back to, you know, my old advisors, like, advice, you know, a little bit of slope makes up for a lot of Y intercepts. And the only way that you kind of maximize your slope is by, it's not just uh, being comfortable with being comfortable, but almost seeking it to some degree, right? Like if you're not in a situation where you're pushing yourself to uh, explore new territory, learn new things, like, I don't know, it might not be a great end outcome. So you should always be looking to improve, get 1% better every day. I love that. That's really, really good advice. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ray. And where can our listeners find out more about you and Affinity Online? Yeah. So for Affinity, I mean, we've got, you know, we're at affinity.co and we're on LinkedIn and also on on, on Twitter. For me, I suppose my 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 Twitter handle, rzow186, is, is, is my Twitter handle. So that's probably the best place to find me. Awesome. We will share all of that in our show notes. I just wanted to thank you so much for being on our show today, Ray, and for sharing your story. We had a great time interviewing you. Thank you, Ray. Pleasure to be on. Thank you, guys. Uh, We said it earlier, but I love this podcast a lot. It's absolutely one of my favorite (laughs) interviews. This is it's so crazy how knowledgeable you are in this field and how passionate you are. And thank you so much for being the podcast today. I think you give me way more credit than I deserve, but and and I appreciate it, Brian. But yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.